Ahoy, authors! You're listening to the Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 105 of the Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about scenes. I'm Leslie Watts, here with special guest editor Valerie Francis. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. As you know, the Writership Podcast is brought to you by Jim Crocurl and author Marketing Club. Jim has just launched a new business for nonfiction authors called Business Around a Book. So if you're a nonfiction author, visit www.businessaroundabook.com and let Jim help you turn your nonfiction book into a profitable life-changing business. That's businessaroundabook.com. Hey, Valerie. Hello, Leslie. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm so, thank you so much for jumping in. Um, Clark, I just want to explain for everybody, Clark had some uh, army commitments that were um that he needed to do and we didn't have a chance to record and so i have valerie and another wonderful editor friend who have uh agreed to jump in and help out so i'm appreciating that and clark will be back when he's back from his army maneuvers and things that they do in the summer well thank you for asking me to come on this is a lot of fun Awesome. I like doing these things. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, okay. And so I know you from that we both went to the StoryGrid workshop in February. In February. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And and then we're going to the StoryGrid editor training in September, which is super exciting. In Nashville. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That'd be fun. So I've, you know, we've talked about story and stuff and, um, and I've always appreciated your insights and, and good thoughts. So I thought you would be a really good person to, to tap for this discussion today. It's fun, you know, because very few people I know actually want to talk to me about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Most people will smile and nod as I talk about things like inciting incidents or whatever. Um, but they don't know what I'm talking about and they really don't care. <laughs> it's, only, it's only writers who really care about this stuff. So uh, this is a hoot for me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So speaking of StoryGrid, uh, do, do you have a quote this week from... Anybody we might know? Yes, Sean Coyne himself, in fact. And it's on topic this week because we are talking about scenes. And so this is what Sean has to say. There is just no hiding for a writer when it comes to a scene. It either works or it doesn't. There is either a very clear shift in value from beginning to end, a change, or there isn't. If there is no change no value at stake, no movement, the scene doesn't work. And if the writer's scene doesn't work, no matter how well he can craft a sentence, his story won't work. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, a little tough love from, from Sean Coyne there, I think. <laughs> but you know what? Um, that's okay. That's okay. Because, you know, writing a, a book 
um, even a short story, but certainly a book, it, there's a lot of time involved. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the challenge is getting the first draft out. And once you've got that done, you can go back and start editing and evaluating your scenes to see if they work or if they don't. And it's one thing for an editor or a beta reader or another friend who's a writer to read a scene and say, well, you know, uh, that part felt a little funny. Mm-hmm. Or I, hmm, that's not helpful feedback. <laughs> because, right. Well, what does funny mean? You know, however... As, she, as Sean is talking about in this quote, he's pinpointing the fact that it needs a change. Mm-hmm. So then you can go in and look at your scene and say, well, does it? Is there a shift? Is there a change? Is there movement? If there is, great, I can tick that box and move on to the next thing. If there isn't, already I have a practical thing that I can fix. That's such an excellent point, Valerie, because I think a lot of people get discouraged about the mistakes that they make. And like our characters, when when something doesn't go well for them, when they make mistakes, when they have setbacks, that they learn something from it. They they advance in the internal genre, <laughs> you know, the inner journey when things don't go well, and and so we can learn things. And it also, boy, thank goodness, we can. You know, we can fix the things. Once we know there's a problem, then we have an opportunity to fix them. And so that's really wonderful. And it just helps us continue to grow as writers. So I guess if I had one, you know, one of my missions is for people to sort of embrace the problems that they Mm -hmm. encounter and, and use them as um, jumping off points for new learning so that they can really tell great stories that their readers love. And yeah, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) We all want page turners, right? I mean, that's what we're all looking for is a great story. And it's really concrete things like this, looking to see if a scene has a change in it Mm -hmm. that that benefits everyone, writers and writers. Yeah. Agreed. So we have a scene today that we're going to talk about and author Maxwell Perkins, which is a great name. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Author Maxwell Perkins has sent us Shadow Falls and the genre he said is a mystery or thriller. We, um, if we, if we had the whole story, we could kind of unpack that, but we'll leave it there for now. The word count is 51,000, and we're going to, or Valerie has agreed to read the prologue for us today, and uh, it has some mature language and a decomposing body, so if those things are uncomfortable for you, you might want to tune out for a little bit. (laughs) Um, So, If you like them, keep listening. (laughs) Right, right. Stick with us. Uh, So... The uh, so yeah so Valerie is going to read the prologue of Shadow Falls. Okay, are you ready? Ready. It was a warm Tuesday afternoon, a perfect day to play by the river. The boys went to school together at Ramsey Middle on Grand Avenue, but this was July, so they had the day free with little parental oversight. They met at Anthony's house on Ashland Avenue in St. Paul and skateboarded the 10 blocks to Shadow Falls Park, where Summit Avenue ended at the river in a cul-de-sac. 
John was way out in front as usual. Anthony followed with his, his spaniel mix, Rocket, who sometimes pulled him along on the, his longboard like a sled dog in the Iditarod, except when he smelled something interesting or spotted a squirrel or something that needed peeing on when he'd pull his master to one side or the other and right off the sidewalk. If Anthony didn't react quickly and jump off, he might go flying. Mike, the obligatory fat kid, brought up the rear as constant as a caboose. It didn't matter that he wasn't that overweight. He was the fattest of the three, so he got the moniker. Every group of teenagers had a fat kid. It was a law of nature. Shadow Falls Park was the perfect place for 12-year-old boys to hang out on a summer afternoon. It was shadowy from the dense trees and had secluded spots that were more or less hidden from both the street and the river. It was ideal for smoking, cigarettes, or pot. Best of all, it had a tree rope swing with a 30-foot drop over a pool at the base of the waterfall. It was just dangerous enough to make it exhilarating with minimal risk of actual death. For days, they'd been giving Mikey shit for never having swung on the swing, until he finally gave in to the pressure and said he would do it this time. John went first, as usual, not even waiting for the other two to get there leaping out with a Tarzan yodel. Ah! What a torque, said Anthony, when Mikey came up next to him. Uh, you go next, suggested Mikey. There was a splash as John landed in the water below. Then another wild shout when he popped back up. From the shock of cold water or just your sheer exuberance, it was impossible to tell. You couldn't swim in the actual Mississippi, well, you could, but it had dangerous currents, and it was generally believed to be way too polluted to be safe. Anyway, it was brown and nasty looking and didn't smell very good. Every year, some dumbasses would try to get across and have to be rescued, if they were lucky. Some were just carried away by the current until they got too tired to swim, and then it was adios muchacho. You could, however, bathe in the water of the plunge pool at the base of the waterfall, before it streamed down into the river. Anthony stripped off his Alfred E. Newman t-shirt, arms crossed, pulling from the bottom up and over his head, exposing his pale, thin torso, and leaving his brown hair sticking up on one side, which made Mikey giggle. What's so funny? asked Anthony. Mikey just laughed more. Anthony rolled his eyes. Idiot. They both, look, they both took off their shoes and socks and left them next to John's stashing their boards out of sight in some undergrowth. Mikey kept his shirt on. Rocket had already run down the bank, trailing the leash Anthony had dropped to see what all the commotion was about. Uh, no, that's okay. I'll go last, said Mikey. No way, fat boy. You must really think I'm stupid. If I go, you'll just stand here playing with yourself all alone until I come back and make you go. Don't be such a fucking baby. Just go said Anthony, shoving the rope at his friend. He wasn't bullying, or he didn't mean to be. He just wanted Mikey to have the experience of flying through the air. It was an in-fucking-credible. And he didn't want Mikey to miss out on it again. Mikey looked petrified and possibly close to tears, but he accepted the rope. Closing his eyes, he took a deep breath and held it as if he, as if he were about to jump off a high diving board into water. You can do it. It's so awesome. You're going to love it. Just hold on tight, run, and jump off. Then, 
let go when you're over the water. To Anthony's astonishment, Mikey did just that. Mikey's shout nearly drowned out the noise from down on the beach far below. Rocket was barking like he'd treat a cat. A second shout came from John, sounding very excited about something. Excited and something else. Anthony cupped his hands and hollered down. What? I can't understand you. John began climbing back up, on li back up the limestone rocks. When he got closer, he tried again. It sounded to Anthony like he was saying something about a wet guy on a beach. What's so exciting about that? wondered Anthony. He heard John shouting back something, then heard a big splash echo off the rocks, which was the sound of Mikey landing in the swimming hole. Rocket had been drawn to investigate by the smell of something decomposing, as dogs will. John followed to see what, Rocket, what had Rocket so worked up. The body was snagged on a piece of driftwood and floated in shallows a couple of feet from the sandy beach. At first, he didn't register what he was looking at. It was face down. Some dark hair, some blue cloth, and oh my fucking God, is that a hand? The skin wasn't the right color for a person of any race he'd ever seen. It was grayish. If it weren't for that, he might have clocked it sooner for what it was. But it was a hand, all right. Then the smell hit him, and he backed away fast, his heart pounding, his lunch trying to escape. He put his hand over his mouth and ran back the way he'd come. Anthony, Mikey, hey, you gotta see this. Get down here now. I think it's a dead guy. It's a guy, and he's dead in the water. A dead fucking body in the water. Mikey landed in the pool close enough that a few drops of the huge splash hit John, drawing his attention away from screaming and yelling up the bank at Anthony. He turned instead to Mikey, urging him to hurry and get out of the water. Before Mikey was even all the way on dry ground, John grabbed him by the hand and started dragging him down toward the beach, still carrying on about a dead body. Mikey was still half in shock. He hadn't had any chance to catch his breath and was dripping wet. When they got to the beach about ten feet from the water's edge, John stopped putting an arm out, clotheslining his friend, and pointing with the other hand. Mikey didn't see what he was supposed to be looking at. What? John dropped his arm, implicitly giving permission, permission for Mikey to move forward. Eight feet from the water, six, three, and then, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, Mikey repeated like a mantra. By the time Anthony finally made it down, running to see what the hell was going on, what was causing so much commotion, the smell of vomit mingled with the stench of decay, and he quickly lost his lunch as well. Before stepping back, out of no shot to stand next to John, Mikey was on his knees struggling to get his breath under control, tears streaming down his face. When he could breathe, he didn't rise, but instead crawled backward on the sand until putting distance between himself and the body. He stood shakily, wiping off his knees and spitting. They all stared at the corpse blankly, unsure what to do next, not wanting to break the silence as if afraid of invoking bad luck or some sort of jinx curse. Later, after they dragged Rocket away from the cadaver and climbed back up the steep bank to where they'd left their clothes, Anthony called 911 with the cell he had left tucked away in his shoe. He was the only one of the three whose parents trusted him with a mobile phone. 
When he called his mother, who was incredulous at first, speculating that the boys might be pranking him or they were all imagining something that wasn't real. But eventually she was convinced, at least that her son was sure of what they'd all seen. She said she'd be right there. The police, uniformed officers in a marked squad car, arrived in under five minutes while the boys were still debating and daring each other to go back for another look. The cops thanked Anthony and then phoned the other boys' parents, arranging for them all to be driven home in Anthony's mother's minivan. Traumatizing as, as it had been, they were all bummed out and complaining about not getting to see the dead guy pulled out of the water. Okay. okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So, um, I was, oh, I have a couple of notes before we start talking that I want to make yes. sure that, that everyone understands because it will... Um, it will, in a sense, set the scene for our discussion. So this prologue is essentially, it's the hook, the, you know, the finding of the corpse by these three middle school kids. And the author has told us that this has little to do with the rest of the book. These characters don't show up again. And he said he didn't put very much into developing them. So it's just the corpse that as goes into the rest of the story and he's kind of an enigma or a question mark for the first few chapters so the main purpose of this scene for the author is that it establishes that someone dies and the rest of the book is um is intended for more mature readers and um the author said it wasn't very appropriate for the podcast so uh we were talking about this uh, ahead of time and we were like, it's as if we get this scene and then there's a wall behind it because we don't really know what's on the other side. We get a little glimpse because we know that the body goes on and we know from the author that there's a, um, that there are some very adult uh, things happening in the rest of the story but in this we have this image that uh, we talked about when we talked about this Valerie I mentioned I'm expecting something like stand by me and you mentioned the Goonies um, because we have these kind of interesting middle school characters who are uh, doing their thing here in this scene absolutely I think this is you know, this is a really interesting exercise for me um, because I only have this prologue. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. other than what you have just said, I don't know anything else about the story. So just reading the prologue, yeah, and and we came to the same conclusion without talking to one another. We had, we, we have, the author has set us up now for a certain type of story. Um, and... I don't think that the story that we're expecting is actually the story that follows. So when we're looking at scenes, um, there's there's two things that you have to keep in mind. There's how does this scene, whether it's a prologue or an official chapter within the full novel, how does this scene fit within the story? And then how does this scene work in and of itself? So the macro level and the micro level, as, as Sean Coyne would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I forgot to mention, and I want to mention before we get further in, that 
that this is that this is an early draft of this scene from the author's NaNoWriMo project. And so I want us to keep in mind that it's an early draft and that it's helpful to look at early drafts because um, because we want you to know what to do with yours because you don't want to turn it in to your editor before it's ready because you're not sure of the story yet and and that kind of thing and like Stephen King mentions in on writing you know he talks about writing with the door closed and that that getting feedback too early can be detrimental can influence you in directions you don't mean to go so you want to get your your story solid before you seek advice that's not that you're not certain is going to be supportive of finding the story. So um, I, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that. But then yes, that that so we have this, that where does the where does the scene fit in the context of the story? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's sort of what writers are going to focus on in their first draft, you know, making sure they have all of the, all of the pieces to their story. And, and, and that's exactly what Stephen King is referring to with writing with the door closed, because your first draft is going to be rough, uh, because you'd be a fool to waste your time, um, worrying about every single sentence, uh, when you may end up cutting that whole part, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, there's on, on YouTube right now, there's a really interesting, uh, documentary, I guess it is about Ian Rankin and the BBC followed him uh, as he was writing one of his novels. And I think it's standing in another man's grave. I think that's the novel he's writing, but that's exactly what he does. He spends 30 or 40 days just bashing out his first draft to make sure he has all the pieces of the puzzle there. And that's his first draft. And then he goes back to make sure, you know, everything that he needs is there. And only at the end will he start then refining right down to the sentence level. So um, so first drafts are really important, you know, and that's what they're that's what they're designed for is to make sure you have all the pieces in in the right places and, and does this store this does this scene serve the overall story and help propel the overall story forward. Yeah, yes. Um, and we'll include I'll include the link to the Ian Rankin documentary. Thanks for rem- bringing that up because that's a great that's a great resource um the so i mean the prologue as it's set up is kind of an interesting setup for the you know for a story like we talked about for a story about mikey um and but we have some questions about whether it's a you know whether it's a it would work for the thriller or mystery that's following because we the author said he didn't he didn't spend too much time developing these characters but we get close enough to them that we're at least i i know from from my experience i'm relating to mikey and his you know being fearful of jumping and and kind of in that you know, peer pressure situation where the friend wants you to do something you may or may not want to do that you agreed to and, and all of that. So I definitely felt some empathy for Mikey. And I think, you know, 
that it would be hard. It's hard to go from that and then never see them again. Yeah, I agree. And like you, it was Mikey that I zeroed in on Mm -hmm. as protagonist and Anthony as the antagonist. Um, John was John and the dog are sort of extra. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was really a story about these two boys and you have Mikey who is fearful. Uh, He's the one trying to overcome something. Mm -hmm. He's the one who is singled out as the underdog by, you know, being called the fat kid, even though he isn't actually fat. He's the one being heckled. And, um, I know, I know it says that Anthony wasn't trying to bully him, but I, I felt like Anthony was bullying him or pushing him to uh, do something that maybe he wasn't quite ready for. I think Mikey is the one who has something to lose. And um, so, yeah, I was invested in Mikey. And to find out that he's not in the rest of the story, I thought, okay, <laughs> so why am I, Why did you tell me about him? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of like now a tease. Huh? To him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Um, and what we were, um, lost the train of thought. Yeah. Why does that happen? So, (laughs) but where this, oh, I know what I wanted to say. So I wanted to mention, we, so this is a prologue, but it's still the first scene of the novel. So it's when we're, you know, we're being pulled into the story. So it's the hook and, and that, and I felt hooked, uh, by Mikey's story um and I wanted to say so in in episode 96 we talked about prologues and the considerations for whether to have a prologue and and that kind of thing but what what we want to kind of zero in on here is yeah where does this fit in the bigger story and and if this is if this is it, like, why are we getting so close to these characters if we're not yeah. going to go on with them? Yeah, if the point, uh, as um, Max uh, Max Perkins, the author, oh, I still love his name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I even before the podcast asked Leslie if it really was his name. Um, uh, and if you don't know what we're referring to, then go watch the movie Genius uh, with yes. the Colin Firth, and then you'll understand everything. Um <laughs> So if if the point of this scene is to reveal to the reader that there is a dead body, mm-hmm. and if, if, the, if the important thing is the dead body for the rest of the story to come, I think that my suggestion to him would be to try and find another way of revealing that to the, to the audience, to the reader, um, without introducing us to characters and getting us emotionally involved with characters who don't return because that's going to distract as a reader that's going to distract me from the story because I'm going to spend the rest of the book wondering what happened to Mikey and Anthony and John and are they going to come back up and where are they and when does the story loop back Mm -hmm. and pick them up yeah yeah I think so if so there would be of course lots of different options for the author to, you know, to, for revealing the body. But if the, if, if Maxwell wanted to stick with this basic setup where you have three boys and a dog who discover the body, then having it be a point of view that is more, you know, that is 
is like an omniscient point of view, but one that's that's distant, you know, mm-hmm. more distant. So we're not seeing the drama between the boys so much and not getting to know them. They're just kind of three anonymous, generic boys who discover the body and and that of course that takes all of the heart out of the scene that we have in front of us but if you want to if you want to introduce the body this way without bringing in characters who are going to continue in the rest of the story then giving us a little giving us a good buffer um from from them so that we're not so that we don't connect with them and as you say like continue looking for them throughout the book wondering when they're coming back absolutely and perhaps he could try putting the emphasis on the the mood um mm-hmm. rather than on the boys because the, the the only reason the boys are there is to find the body and to alert authorities that there is a body right. so put it you know like the boys can just come in at the very end we can just have a description of this body floating in the water, very ominous and dark. Um, if it's a thriller, if it's a mystery thriller, I'm assuming there's, it's going to be fairly dark mm-hmm. or dark overtones. And maybe give us a little more information about the person that that has died. And I don't mean specific details of, you know, his name was this or he lived in there, but just a little, get us, get, get the reader interested in who that person is mm-hmm. and put the reader's focus on the body. And then the children can come by. You can just have, like you say, uh, a distant view of a couple of kids coming by and we can hear them screaming or hear Mikey being sick. And then Anthony calling his mom, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Cause chances are he's going to call his mom instead of nine one one. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And nine one one first think and then his mom but anyway yeah. whoever he calls put the to make sure my point is just to make sure that the reader's focus is on the body mm-hmm. because that's what we need to point to for the reader because we need a reader comes into a story expecting to follow a path so we have to point at the right path for them to follow and right now this prologue is pointing us in the direction of the boys instead of in the direction of the body Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. In fact, you mentioned earlier, you said, if this were a, a story about Mikey's journey, then, and, you know, like he is bullied or doesn't, you know, doesn't stand up or does things from peer pressure, continues to struggle with fear, you know, whatever his personal journey is, then this prologue might work because like it's the seed of something you know, in him, in his internal journey. But as, you know, since we move away from that, then it, it doesn't work as well. And, but I will say, like, as you were talking, I had, I had a, you know, an alternate idea. And always, of course, when we're talking about ideas and suggestions, it's kind of, it's just spitballing. It's not the author must do this, you know, but, mm-hmm. Absolutely. but, but the idea I had was, you know, show these boys kind of frolicking and having fun and teasing without getting to know them too well, just, you know, seeing them from a distance and then seeing them jump in the water. So we have 
kind of a different mood that that and then the scene turn which we'll talk about in a in a couple minutes the scene turn would be when they discover the body and this kind of idyllic um scene suddenly goes dark because there's this really gross body in the water that they've just been swimming in and which is the thing that horrifies me the most i'm just gonna say (laughs) but but the point again is that the reader's attention is drawn to the body right exactly that that's the that's the poignant thing of the of the scene yeah absolutely yeah yeah so if we if we then have you know like if we were to set aside the fact that this is the prologue for a thriller and we were to just look at this as a standalone scene then we would start looking at the elements which include like the inciting incident which is the thing that like it's a change of some sort throws the thing that incites the action the action of the scene that gets everything moving yeah yeah and then we would have progressive complications so when um things get worse like there are obstacles that are that stand between the the character the main character the protagonist essentially in the scene that those obstacles become more challenging in specific ways and that comes to a turning point where the character needs to make a decision which is called the crisis question and he makes a decision, which is the climax, and then the resolution is kind of what happens as a result. So that's just a quick and dirty of the of those five yeah. slash six um, elements that we need. And there are other elements, and we'll kind of talk about those, but that's kind of an overlay. And this is... Uh, Sean Coyne talks about this. Robert McKee, who wrote Story, talks about these same elements. So different people I've noticed talk about scenes differently. But this is the um, this is the structure that I've found that makes the most sense and really makes scenes awesome. So that's what we're talking about. Yeah. So as a standalone scene, what do we think? The the inciting incident, if we're talking about, and this, you know, you and I agreed that this is Mikey's story, essentially, in this scene. Yeah, when you're coming into a scene, like when a reader comes into a scene, they're walking down a certain path, and they have a certain set of expectations as to what's going to happen. And we need to have a clear, the, the reader needs to have a clear statement of what the characters want, And what's standing in the way of them getting what they want and what what's at stake if they don't get what they want. And these wants and obstacles and the stakes, they're in they're in all the scenes, but to varying degrees. I mean, you're going to have big scenes in a story. You're going to have little, you know, smaller scenes in a story. So there's always a it's a sliding scale. So. And when you say when you say direct statement we're not we don't mean that mikey has to say i really don't want to do this you know like it doesn't it's it's subtext but it has to be in there 
it has to be clear. Yeah, it has, it has to be clear. clear. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the so the reader comes into a scene with a certain set of expectations. Mm-hmm. Okay, the the story is going to go this direction now, and we'll go in that direction for so long until we hit a turning point, which which shifts things a little bit, and we end up on a slightly different path at the end of the scene. So the resolution then is the new path that we're on rather than the story being one straight line from beginning to end. It it meanders and it zigs when you think it's going to zag and that kind of stuff. Hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully. Hopefully. Yes. So coming into this um, and why you and I both came to the same conclusion that Mikey was the protagonist is because he's the guy with the most to lose here. Mm -hmm. Right. What he want, what does he want to do? He wants to, jump off that rope. He wants to get over his fear. Um, And what's at stake if he doesn't do this is his pride, right? I mean, he's got to save face in front of his buddies who have been constantly ribbing him for for being afraid and for being the fat guy and all that sort of stuff. So that's why we're identifying Mikey as the protagonist. Yeah, I think um, he's, right, he's the one who is experiencing the effects of what happens in the scene. So yeah, I think that's, that's the, right. and so for him, wait, so you identified like what, what he wants and, and so then what's, what are the obstacles to that? Well, his fear is a big one. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's just, he's just afraid and he, he doesn't want to take off his shirt. He's self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's interesting that the author says he hasn't spent a lot of time developing these characters because um, I have a very clear picture of certainly Anthony and Mikey. Yeah. Um, the inciting incident, if we if we look at the five elements that we talked about, uh, well, six if you conclude turning point, the inciting incident I had listed as the conversation that the boys had before the scene even opened. And... Um, He says here, for days they'd been giving Mikey shit for never having swung on the swing until he finally gave in to the pressure and said he would do it this time. So to me, that was the inciting incident. Mikey finally said he would jump off the rope. Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree? Yes. Yes, I agree. And so then from that, we should have a series of complications that get progressively more difficult. Right. So here we, you know, when he arrives, he gets cold feet. And mm-hmm. and so he's in a way like he's the only one standing in the way of him getting what he wants, which is you know, doing the doing the jump. I mean, mm-hmm. we have Anthony in a way is he's encouraging him but in different ways but but they're not i mean unless unless we say that Mikey has a different goal then Anthony isn't really an obstacle to it like unless Mikey's goal is at that point shifts and he says yep i don't want to do it i mean he 
doesn't want to do it, but he does, you know. So if it's only if Anthony, it's only if Mikey is dead set against and his desire in the scene, his goal is to not jump, that Anthony's attempts by insulting him, making fun of him, and encouraging him are any kind of obstacle. But otherwise, this is just, it's, you know, it's kind of sp- spurring him on, in a, constructively right. or not. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So he wants to jump off the rope. What's keeping him from jumping off the rope is his own fear, which is really interesting because usually we are the ones holding ourselves back from doing the thing it is that we want to do. Mm -hmm. So that as a complication is interesting uh, and I think could be explored a little deeper um, and could it could be intensified. He could add, the author could add in a couple of, like we could, we could have some indication as to the stress that Mikey is under and, and an indication as to how he's feeling. Is he starting to sweat? Is he afraid his hands will slip off the rope before he wants to let go and maybe he'll hit the rocks instead of going into the water? If we got in his head a little more, because we're already invested in him. Mm -hmm. So bring us a little further into his feeling, into his fear, so that we really get a sense as to what's at stake here. And it's his pride at stake because Anthony is really, you know, turning the screws to him. Mm-hmm. So that could even be amplified a little bit more. So if he if he backs out, what'll really happen? Can we get a really good sense as to what Anthony's going to put him through? And, you know, he's clearly going to make him feel like a loser, but how is he going to make him feel like a loser? Exactly what will happen? Will he go back to uh, his the buddies at school in September and laugh at Mikey? Is there something, do the boys have a bet? Does Anthony have a Anthony, Anthony and John have a bet as to whether Mikey's going to do this or not? Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? Like to, for Mikey, what, what would it mean for the boys to, you know, whatever the boys would do, what does that mean to him? Does it mean that he would be, would he be, eh, it's no big deal. I have these other friends. Or would he be devastated and, you know, and disconnected from his peers and that kind of thing. So I think that it's really important to get inside, like, what the actual stake is for the character, what's personally how they're how they think how they interpret that problem yeah like the reader really wants to care mm-hmm. you know we we really want to get invested in the characters we really want a story that we cannot put down and that's how an author would achieve that by really ramping up what's at stake really giving us a sense as to what is going to be lost if they don't succeed. Um, yeah, because we, we, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. So it, it, we can identify with those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and, and we should say for, for scenes in general, some scenes, these things are going to be smaller. And for mm-hmm. some scenes, they're going to be big. You know, like the critical scenes or the, you know, obligatory scenes with for your genre, those scenes in the story, those turns, those stakes, those, you know, the complications, all of that is going to be bigger 
than, you know, the, the kind of scenes that come in between. But, but it, it should be there like that, like the, again, these are the elements that make scenes work. And when you have scenes that work, then your story works. That's right. And so then after the progressive complications, we have a turning point, or we should have a turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking before the recording that the scene does seem to have a turning point. However, it comes in, comes at the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, and what a turning point is, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, when a reader comes into a scene they have a certain set of expectations. They think the scene is going to unfold in a certain way. And the turning point is when those expectations shift. So things don't necessarily unfold in the expected way. And those shifts, just like the the quote that we had from Sean at the beginning, those shifts, those changes are essential. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. nothing changes, nothing shifts in a scene, the scene doesn't work. And the ramifications of writing scenes that don't work is that your reader, your audience gets bored and they put down the book. The shifts keep the reader's interest because then the reader's wondering, oh, okay, well, now what's going to happen? Where, Where's the author taking me next? Where's the director taking me next? So what you would expect to see, you have... After you get the, you have your inciting incident, which starts off all the action, and then you have a series of complications, which are getting more and more serious. Then you need a shift, and that shift is called a turning point. And it leads the protagonist of the scene to a crisis question. Will I do this, or will I do this? So we said that the scene was about Mikey wanting to jump off that rope. And so, and and he has already said he's going to jump off the rope. So that's what the reader's expecting. Okay, Mikey's going to jump off the rope. Mm -hmm. And he does. So there's really nothing there that makes the reader go, whoa, now what's going to happen? There's no shift. We expect Mikey's going to jump off the rope, and he jumps off the rope. So the scene kind of falls a little flat. And if the author wants to shift this scene and wants to draw the attention on the dead body, what we said a little earlier before we started recording, and and Leslie and I agreed on this, is that he could move the dead body up to this stage. Maybe before Mikey, you know, he's, he's there and his palms are sweating and he's really trying to psych himself up to go off this rope, and they discover the dead body. We can actually hear John rather than it just being a muffled shout from below. Mm -hmm. We can actually hear John saying there's a dead body. Aha, now we have shifted. We've gone in a different direction. We're no longer wondering if Mikey is going to go off the rope or not because he's been given an out. He doesn't have to go off that rope. And our, our focus is now on the body and no longer on whether Mikey's going to go off the rope or not. So that would be a turning point right there mm-hmm. when there's a shift. But there, there is no shift. That's what I think. What, what, what did, did you come up with, Leslie? Yeah, I mean, it's, there isn't really a, 
a change in our expectation. I agree. I mean, could, you know, you could stretch it to say, well, we don't know. He's so nervous. He's, you know, at that point, he's trying to get out of it. You know, I don't want to take my shirt off. No, you go first, you know, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe if it, you know, if it were developed more, that that would be an actual turning point in that. But, but it doesn't, you know, we don't explore the moment with him. Like, it's kind of funny because there's some buildup and there's lots of Anthony trying different methods to get him to go. Mm -hmm. But when he does finally jump, like he just goes, we don't have a, we don't see a moment of decision. No, which you don't necessarily like it doesn't act. It's not an absolute necessity to show the decision, but it it helps if we don't we need to know that there was a decision and this, you know, we do because he jumps. But that I guess what I'm saying is we don't it's not like you said, it's not really a turn. It's not a clear turn or a shift in the value of the scene from he's going to be facing one thing or, you know, like best of two bad choices or irreconcilable goods, which are kind of what make up the crisis question. Right. So, yeah. So for the, for the crisis question to really have a lot of impact, we've got to be invested in what's at stake for Mikey. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I'm noticing we're going a little long. So I hope everybody will kind of hang with us as we kind of, you know, wrap up the last two elements. Um, so the right, the climax is just the is essentially the answer, like what, what does he decide? Mm-hmm. He goes, and then, you know, he jumps in the water, the, for, the resolution is, you know, what happens kind of as a result, or, you know, what's, what are the consequences? And as he jumps in the water, there's a dead body floating in it, which is terrifying. But we find out a little later that both or that all the boys were kind of bummed out that they didn't get to see it being pulled from the water. So maybe it was a little exciting after getting over the immediate trauma um, or not. We don't know. But um so with that as the resolution, we have, I mean, that's, that's interesting, but it's very interesting. I mean, it's, a, that's the twist, right? Is that mm-hmm. we're, ex- we're not expecting that, but as you say, it comes when it, it's not a result of what, it's not connected to what's going on with Mikey and his conflict. That's right. And it could be. It could be. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's kind of, you know, so I mean, at bottom, I guess we, you know, we're saying it doesn't work as it's written and that there are some things that could be done to kind to make it a lot more powerful you know, even if the author wants to go this route with this scene one way or another, then for revealing the body, then there are some things that, that he can do to make it powerful and make it really work and pull the 
reader in, in a way that's not going to leave them wondering about the wrong things as they go forward. That's right. For a scene to work, it has to change. So where do you want to put the change? How are you going to incorporate the change in the scene? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So that's great. I love that we got to unpack that scene. (laughs) And so, so our editorial mission for the week is to unpack your scenes essentially so if if you have one that's not quite quite working or somebody has you read it and it's not you know you're like "Eh, something's not working or you've gotten some feedback from someone that's kind of vague about I just this isn't you know that people say this isn't quite grabbing me or I don't know there's something mm, yeah so then you want to unpack it and look for these elements you know the inciting incident the thing that you know kicks things off the change in the status quo the progressive complications so this these are the you know the obstacles and the things that make it harder to for the for the protagonist to get what he wants and the turning point is kind of that little sixth thing in there, like what, where, where are the reader's expectations upset or turned or changed? And then the crisis question, the decision that the character needs to make. And then the climax, which is, of course, his decision and the resolution what un- unfolds. So then when you go through that and you find the stuff that's not working or the elements that could be stronger, then you want to add that to your list of things you need to fix in your story and, uh, and then go about innovating and, and tweaking until you, until you make it really powerful. So, um, so that's our editorial mission for the week. And as a reminder, you can go to writership.com slash episodes to sign up and have those editorial missions delivered right to your inbox, which is a great solution if you are normally on the go while listening to us. So that's it for this week. And remember, the Writership Podcast is brought to you by Jim Cookrow and the Author Marketing Club. Jim has just launched a new business for nonfiction authors called Business Around a Book. So if you're a nonfiction author, visit www.businessaroundabook.com and let Jim help you turn your nonfiction book into a profitable, life-changing business. That's businessaroundabook.com. And Jim and the Author Marketing Club cover hosting and technical support for the podcast, but our Patreon crew supports our time and preparing for the show. You can support us there and earn some extra rewards by visiting patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoyed the show, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. We have an explanation of how to do that. If you have, if you struggle with technology, um, you can find that on the website. If you want to have your five pages reviewed, please visit writership.com slash submissions. And finally, be sure to stop by the book editor show, which Clark hosts with Peter Turley. That's it for episode 105. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. 
Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.